Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Why does the Department of Justice and the SEC call the Code of Conduct the foundation of an effective compliance and ethics program? Well, this question is something that's come up over the last few years as this terminology, the foundation, has been more frequently used by both the department, SEC, and some other agencies that were either investigating or working with organizations on improving their program. It's become a buzzword over the last few years. But it's important, I think, to take a step back and look at where code of conduct became such a vitally important piece of the puzzle for a compliance program to begin with. If we look back at the original U.S. sentencing guideline standards for organizations, which are going to be celebrating their 25th anniversary in November of 2016, we don't find code of conduct. And that's actually a little bit of a trick because code of conduct still does not exist in the text of the sentencing guidelines. I think there's an assumption that the hallmarks of an effective program that are found in the sentencing guidelines specifically mention code of conduct, but they don't. They talk about standards. Now, standards could be your individual policies. They could be other written documents. They definitely can be code of conduct. That probably would also encompass things like your employee handbook. So I think it's important to kind of take a look back of where we came from, if you will, over the last 20 years, where there wasn't at all a focus on code of conduct when these initial compliance and ethics program standards were being developed. It's only been a sharper focus, I think, in the last 10 years and certainly the last five years. So this term foundation, what does it mean? What are the organizations that are going to be peering in, the stakeholders, whether they be regulators or otherwise, what are they going to be looking for? Well, there are some primary fundamental pieces of the compliance and ethics program puzzle that the code of conduct can often be a part of. So when we talk about a foundation, what do we expect from a foundation? Well, we expect the foundation to be solid. We expect it to be well-planned. A foundation for a building or for your compliance and ethics program should be purpose-built and unique. It should reflect everything that's going to stand on top of it. It has to support everything else. And then also, uh, for those of you who, like me, live in areas of the country where it can get either very wet or very dry, we know that foundations for buildings and for compliance and ethics programs need to be maintained and they need to be maintained on a regular basis. That's really important and sometimes overlooked, although less and less these days, but I think there are still organizations that take a one-and-done approach with their code of conduct, and really it's a living document that needs to be revisited on a regular basis. And that's true with the foundation too. A foundation is not something that you build a building on and you never pay any attention to again, and that's an important piece of the puzzle to keep in mind. I think that when you're talking about in practical terms what that term means for code of conduct, there are some practical purposes for code that uh, key into this notion of a foundation. One is that the code is going to be the starting point, sort of a, uh, a mission statement of what 
the compliance and ethics program at your organization is meant to be what the expectations are. Those expectations are going to be for the employees and other stakeholders, but it also set out the expectations for the organization as a whole and for management. Oftentimes, these codes, codes of conduct these days have a statement from the CEO or chief executive right in the front of the document. And if that is nothing else, it's a, often a mission statement for compliance at the organization. And that's an important aspect of the code. I wasn't always there 10 years ago, but certainly that personal message and this notion that the, the code stands for something and the ideals and principles in the code having to do with the ethics and compliance program stand for something is important. And that's an important role for a foundation. Along with that, it establishes the tone of the conversation that you're going to continue to have with your employees about these issues, whether they be individual risk topics or whether it's discussions of things like reporting or other expectations that you have for the employees or for the organization around the program. And it's sort of the hub of the wheel or base of operations for your compliance program. It's not only going to describe resources like reporting resources and compliance resources that are out there, but it's going to talk about these individual risk topics and presumably in many cases have cross references to further information. Again, acting much as a foundation, it doesn't purport and it shouldn't purport to have all the information about a particular risk topic like, for instance, anti-corruption, but it will give you a starting point. It will give you the basic information and it will be the hub of the wheel for, for the other information that can be found by the stakeholders if they need it. Another key aspect of a foundation is that it's basic, it's simple, it's structural. I think that that really lends itself to talking about the broad values that underpin your compliance and ethics program. And the bottom line here is you want people to be familiar with these values, these basic premises from the code of conduct. I think that we tend to be, as compliance professionals, glass half empties. And so when we think about the code of conduct and its discussion of risk topics, we're trying to put together a resource that can be there to answer these questions and help people remediate problems. But us glass half empties have to remind ourselves sometimes that the main goal is to avoid an issue to begin with. And that should be the code's main purpose as well. It should be aspirational. It should be the values platform of the organization. I think we tend to forget that and concentrate more on the mitigation or the cleanup afterwards rather than the aspirational piece. And I think that's important to consider also when you're talking about a foundation. It's a values foundation, a values platform for the organization as a whole and the compliance and ethics program in particular. But I do think that we still all have to be very pragmatic and understand that the reason why this terminology is being used is because of the relative importance to those that are looking for a code of conduct, whether that's a stakeholder, an employee, or a regulator. This notion of a foundation and using that kind of terminology is a very, very clear cue that the Department of Justice and SEC expect to see a code of conduct. And they expect to see a code of conduct that embodies these notions of a foundation that talks about values, that talks about big picture expectations, and also supports a real bona fide program. So let's take them at their word. Let's make sure 
that the foundation is strong. If you have a question you want answered on the podcast, be sure to submit it on compliancebeat.com. Now here's the upshot. The upshot this week is code of conduct is the foundation of your program. It's got to be solid and well-maintained, must be purpose-built for your unique organization. It supports your program and states the values of your organization. And lastly, it must be maintained. Today, we have three questions with Nicole Tarasov. Armed with a degree in English literature, Nicole stumbled into the ethics and compliance space while looking to make her way as a writer. Now she's read and written more codes of conduct than literary classics and has a borderline obsessive preoccupation with modern compliance culture. Starting as an ENC consultant in 2010, Nicole has transitioned to the Office of Global Compliance and Integrity at LinkedIn, where she designs the company's compliance-related training and communication efforts and helps advise an increasingly millennial workforce on ethics in a fast-paced, disruptive Silicon Valley environment. Welcome, Nicole. Hi, thanks. Can you talk a little bit about your career journey? How did you end up in your current role? Sure. So as mentioned, I got my degree in English literature. And somehow after college, I found myself working as a risk analyst for J.P. Morgan, which is actually pretty satisfying, I guess, to the pragmatic side of my brain, kind of getting a glimpse at the underbelly of the financial fraud and money laundering world. But it wasn't really a role that had a lot of room to create and innovate. So, you know, I was just kind of an analyst cog in a cubicle. And I think everyone who knew me knew that my passion really was in writing. So a few years into that gig, kind of coasting along, not feeling totally inspired, a colleague of mine clued me into an open editorial position at a little e-learning shop with an ethics and compliance consultancy offering, what was then known as Corpedia. Uh, And I thought it was a really interesting opportunity because, you know, ultimately writing and editing codes of conduct and corporate policies and such wasn't exactly my moonshot, but as a non-lawyer who had to read a lot of these things, I'd always found them incredibly painful to slog through. So I was really energized by the concept of of somehow having a hand in reshaping them. So anyway, during my six years with Corpedia, one of my favorite companies that I had the opportunity to work with, and I'm not just saying this, but one of my favorite companies was LinkedIn because I felt like they really embraced the idea of having this smart, innovative code of conduct and compliance program that was really driven by their strong culture and values. And so getting to talk to them more and more. It was really kind of becoming my dream to work for a place like that, obvious tech industry perks notwithstanding. And so I must have released a bunch of cosmic compliance energy into the universe or something because some months down the road, I ended up getting an email from Amin Bauer saying, you know, that there was an open position on his team here at LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, would I consider packing up and moving out to Silicon Valley to, to do great things in compliance? And obviously, you know what my answer was. I've been here at LinkedIn for a year now, and I've come here with the benefit of kind of already having seen so many different kinds of ethics and compliance programs at so many different phases of maturation. And while it's kind of a far cry from being like the next Joyce Carol Oates or anything, it's really kind of the perfect professional balance for me between problem solving and innovation because I get to advise and enable people to make good decisions here at LinkedIn. And I get to do a lot of it uh, through what I write. Now, if you could go back in time one year, and talk to yourself before you took the role at LinkedIn and tell yourself one thing, one piece of advice, what would that one thing be? 
I would definitely say prioritize your professional development. Now that I'm at LinkedIn, and, and bigger than that, now that I'm here in the Valley, I think it's so important for everyone to always be thinking about to never rest on your laurels because best practices are always evolving. Software and other tools are continuously being reevaluated and replaced, and everything you thought you knew becomes obsolete so quickly at this point that you really just can't remain stagnant amongst the pace of change around you. Not if you want to maintain an effective compliance program anyway. I think when I was younger, probably when most of us were younger, you don't really think about falling behind the curve. You kind of have your skill set and you're good at what you do. And so I think it starts to creep up on you sometimes that things in the business environment are constantly changing. And if you're not making it a point to change with them, people stop listening to you really quickly. So definitely now that I'm here, I see so many opportunities to brush up on my core skills and make sure that I'm being an effective communicator and that in turn I'm I'm helping to update elements of our compliance program along those same lines. And not just brushing up, but developing new skills as well, I think, because Unless you're a really large and well-resourced program, there are probably times where you need some design help or engineering assistance, and maybe you can't always get it in short order. So it's good to kind of teach yourself uh, a few of these basic skills and to know kind of how to do some of these things yourself when you're in a pinch. Just teaching myself some basic design skills through lynda.com courses has been a lifesaver because I've been able to turn around comparatively interesting uh, presentations uh, pretty quickly. So I would definitely have emphasized to myself a year ago that I should really brush up on the most current version of Microsoft Office and start pursuing some of my other kind of professional interests to make sure I had a broad range of skills coming in before I hit the ground running. I think that's good advice for anybody, whatever their profession. If you could uh, peer into your crystal ball just a little bit, what one or two trends in compliance and ethics over the next few years do you think will be important? I think a big one is really going to be the concept of a compliance program as a vehicle for a company's culture and values. A lot of the programs that I've seen over my years of experience definitely incorporate values to varying degrees, but I think a lot of them still put a significant emphasis on kind of mitigating specific risk. And you can see that reflected in a lot of companies' codes of conduct that they have publicly listed. And I think that's going to change. I think that's going to have to change. I think the bar is going to be set even higher, and I think it's going to be increasingly up to a company to kind of expand their own employees' understanding of how ethics and compliance and the behaviors expected of them under their code of conduct matter. So I think you're going to see more companies illustrating the practical application of their organizational values through these kinds of ethical behaviors and actions, and and really making more of an effort to appeal to the workforce versus that sort of ever-present reminder of, you know, we want you to feel good about the decisions you make, but also you'll go to jail if you mess up. Um, and I think, you know, I'd also say that I think the um, the sharing economy is really going to start extending itself in a big way to the ethics and compliance space. You know, we all attend these really great networking events, and I think there's a lot of excellent knowledge sharing and relationship building that goes on. But I think there's a lot of room for compliance professionals to kind of build upon their programs by leveraging and, and reskinning some of the bespoke materials that our peers have created that are already, you know, more tailored to our particular space and don't cost us a a literal fortune to license. Um, You know, obviously, that's one of those things where you have to kind of remember the rule of reciprocity and, of course, go about everything, you know, the right way to make sure all of your bases are covered. 
uh, we've experimented a little bit with kind of just sharing a few of the materials directly that we've created with other companies and, and kind of helping each other bolster our programs for little to no cost and in a way that's mutually beneficial. And I think that more and more companies are going to start opening up to that concept a little bit. And I think you're going to see more compliance professionals directly sharing their own materials or even venturing into designing their own kinds of materials specifically to share with others in their space. Well, Nicole, thanks for joining us today and thanks for answering our three questions. Thank you for having me, Eric. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.